Thank you, Michael, and thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship and just really pointing our hearts heavenward this morning. And it's great to hear you sing. It's always wonderful. One of the blessings of being at IRBC is gathering with a larger group and being able to lift our hearts and our voices to the Lord in worship. I trust that your heart has already been stirred this morning as we've had opportunity to do that. Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 25. I want to say thank you to Pastor Phil and to the staff here for the opportunity to come back to IRBC. We love this place. I think my first summer at IRBC was 1989, if memory serves me right. So long ago, I'm not sure. Memory doesn't always serve me right anymore, but I'm pretty sure it was 1989. And uh, ever since then, we have been coming here, not necessarily every single year, but uh, as many years as we possibly could in different capacities and different ways. And so it's a joy to be here back home at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp, where God does great things. God does amazing things through His Word and in our hearts. And I trust that He will do that through the course of this week. That is indeed our prayer, uh, that God would do that work in our hearts. Let me introduce you to my wife, Ruth, who's sitting up here on the front row, my sweetheart of 37 years. Um, I walked into a Baptist church as a non-Baptist with one goal in mind, I heard that the youth group had cute girls. That was the only reason that I went to youth group as a 14-year-old uh, to see if there were any cute girls. A lot of not-so-cute girls walked in. I thought that Baptists were liars. <laughs> Sorry, I probably shouldn't refer to girls in that manner, I realize. But there was a cute little redhead finally that came to the Baptist church youth activity, and I immediately noticed her and thought, man, I'd like to get to know that cute girl. And so I've been getting to know that cute girl for the last 37 years, and the Lord has blessed us. We've been married 32 of those years, and we're very thankful to get to serve the Lord together in ministry. This is our family, a picture of them as well, our, uh, our kids, and, and now our grandkids. Sweetest word in every language is the word papa, and I get to hear that word papa from the lips of the four-year-old, and the one-year-old still working on it, Okay. But uh, eventually, she'll, she can already say the name of her dog, Maverick, but she can't say Papa yet. I'm not sure what the priorities are there, other than we found out the little girl absolutely adores her, uh, her dog. So let me just introduce you to our family, kind of youngest to oldest. And those that have been around IRBC will probably recognize them because they have, they have served, uh, all but one of them have served in various capacities here at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. So off to the le- on the left-hand side... Uh, is our oldest daughter, Ellen, holding our youngest granddaughter, and then her husband is Eric. That's Eric and Ellen Locker. They were here for three summers, serving in an internship here at the camp. And then the Lord called them to Alaska, so he is the director of Higher Ground Baptist Bible Camp on the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska, well-trained by IRBC to go to another place, another part of the world, and serve uh, in camp ministry. So they are serving there. Yes, our grandbabies are that many miles away, okay? Once I Googled it, do you realize that Anchorage, Alaska is farther from where we live in Cleveland, Ohio? Anchorage, Alaska is farther away than Lima, Peru. And so I, for some reason, we were going to make a trip to Lima, Peru, and I realized, wow, our kids are farther away in the United States than, uh, than Peru is. So, but we're thankful where God has them and how God is using them. Uh, they're in the middle of, of, they're about ready to start their next week of camp up there at higher ground. And those are our two grandbabies. Uh, Emery and Ensley. I'll show you another picture of them a little bit later. So that's our oldest daughter. On the opposite side is our second daughter. That's Tori. She also spent every summer of her uh, junior high and senior high life here staffing at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. She loves loves uh, IRBC. And Temi came as, as a camper himself through junior high, senior high, 
And they met at uh, a campus ministry at Iowa State University, and they've been serving in campus ministry ever since then. And uh, they actually just moved after serving at Iowa State in campus ministry. They just moved to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where they'll be doing campus ministry. Uh, there are actually five campuses just over into the St. Paul side of the Twin Cities where they'll be doing outreach uh, on those various campuses. There's already a, a ministry established at the U of M, and they want to establish a ministry in these five other campuses because there are so many students in that portion of the Twin Cities. So they just moved to Minnesota. Are there any Minnesotans here, by the way? Hey, don't you know? Yeah, let's go on a boat, all that good stuff, right? So thank you, Minnesotans, for uh, at least a little bit of a word of support there. And, uh, and then our third daughter's in the back row. She just got married five weeks ago yesterday to her high school sweethearts, and they are Ohioans. So we at least have one child that seems to be sticking close to home where mom and dad are. And so she married her high school sweetheart, Brett, and they're going to be living just five miles from us. We're thankful for that and the Lord letting them stay close and who knows where Carson will, will end up at. Carson's in the back row, and he's also in the front row with mom here uh, serving on the contenders. It's funny how you, you go to back to a place you've known for so many years, and all of a sudden you're now Carson's dad. So I'm Carson's dad. That's good. Just Carson the contender's dad. And junior boys, is he doing okay? Is he all right? And he was good in Sunday school? Yeah, were you behaved? Were you well behaved for him? They, they look down when I ask. What... <laughs> I'm not so sure. I hope so. I hope junior boys that you're all well behaved. Uh, for Carson as he leads that group this year. So thank, we thank the Lord for His mercy, His grace, and His blessing on our family. Uh, most of all, we thank the Lord for salvation. Amen? That somebody brought the gospel of Christ to us. My wife and I both were saved as kids. She grew up in a Christian home. My parents, actually, my mom had just become a Christian as a result of a woman's Bible study. Somebody reaching out to my mom. And then as a result of that, my mom became the family evangelist. Surprise, surprise, Right? and had a part in me coming to Christ, and, and my siblings coming to Christ. Eventually, my dad coming to Christ, that was five years later, that uh, he confessed Christ. And so we're thankful how God brought the gospel to us. I grew up in Nebraska. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Don't, don't hate me, okay? Just because I say things like, go Big Red, or whatever. You guys don't hate Nebraska anymore, do you? We're so bad at football, you don't care, right? Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, we used to be good, and then, you, then all, all Iowans used to hate Nebraska, but now that we're lousy, who cares, right? And so thankful that God brought the, the gospel of Christ uh, to our homes, to our hearts. And then as a teenager, teenage young man, God called me to the ministry, placed upon my heart the desire to, to serve in pastoral ministry and to preach the word of God. And then the Lord led me to Faith Baptist Bible College, just a short version of my testimony, led me to faith, had the joy of serving as a youth pastor at Ankeny Baptist Church for a number of years, and then senior pastor in two churches, also served for a while in the administration at Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary. And then the, the, the Lord kind of completely changed our world two years ago when he called me to be the president of Baptist Midmissions. Completely surprised us. That was not on the bucket list. As a matter of fact, uh, in a lot of ways I was serving in what, if I can call it this, and what I thought of as my dream church. Having served there nine years, things were going very well and thriving. We were in the middle of a building program and just a lot of wonderful things, but God dropped into our world and made it very clear that it was his call for us to leave that pastorate that we love so dearly uh, to serve Baptist Missions. And what a joy it is to serve the 800 or so missionaries that are serving around the globe today, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples, planting churches, and fulfilling that great commission. So I really do count it a real joy and pleasure to get to serve the BMM family. 
I hope we'll get a chance. I'll talk a little bit about BMM along the way, but I hope we'll get a chance to, uh, to interact a little bit about that. There's a display back there. And I believe we landed on Tuesday morning. There may be a special time we'll give you more details about, or maybe I'll share a little bit more. Or just a, It'll be an optional session uh, for me to share a little bit more about what God's doing around the world uh, through Baptist Admissions and give you a chance to ask maybe some questions in regards to missions. I'd love to share about those types of things. I love our, our theme. Oh, I almost forgot. Here's a picture of the grandbabies. All right. How can I forget, right? Right now is when you're supposed to go, aw. Okay, help, help out this papa. Okay. Oh, all right, thank you, thank you. I would have thought you thought my granddaughters were ugly if you had not done that, so how dare you? So make sure you always, and I've already seen some, some grandbaby pictures on phones, you know, that's what we do today, right? We always just, you know, instead of the old billfolds full of pictures, we just carry around our cell phones and show the world about our cutest granddaughters in the whole wide world, so. Well, our theme this week is not my granddaughters, all right? Our, our theme this week is that life is more than a game. Life is truly more than a game. And I love the fact that it's based on John 10.10, 10, where Jesus said this, that, that I come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. So my question for us this morning as we start thinking about that, because I'll t- try to tie all my messages into that theme, is simply this. What that is that abundant life? What is this abundant life thing? Some have wrongly concluded that that abundant life that is being described there is is financial in nature. In other words, health and wealth. If you really have the abundant life, you won't be, you won't have any health issues and you'll have lots of money. And they have wrongly concluded that. So we know it's not that, but it truly is more than a game. I love the way that, that the theme states that it's more than a game. So if it's more than a game, how should we live our lives? What should we do with this little, little space in time called my life and your life on planet Earth? I also like to connect that with maybe a phrase that you've heard a time or two. Maybe somebody has said to you, you know, it's just a game. <laughs> I grew up, grew up enjoying sports, loving sports. I love playing baseball. I love playing football. I kind of love playing basketball. I wasn't as good at it as I should have been for a guy that's 6'5". Um, but I love playing sports. But the older I get, the, that's kind of changed, okay? As a matter of fact, people, because I'm 6'5", people used to always ask me, do you play basketball? It, they don't ask me that anymore. You know what they ask me now? Did you play basketball? I, I guess that's a reference to the fact that they think I'm old. Did you play basketball? My answer to that question is typically not very well. Some of, some of you here remember the, back in the day, the Des Moines area, uh, church league basketball. Boy, oh boy, weren't those some bad memories, right? But I do remember, especially since playing, after playing, and then becoming a, a, a dad, <laughs> a fan, in the stands, more than a time or two, my wife having to remind me about my participation as a fan dad. <laughs> her putting her hand gently on my knee and saying, Pat, it's just a game. <laughs> it's just a game. And of course, what she meant by that was, chill out, dude, right? It's just a game, all right? Who cares if the refs made a bad call? And they did, right? Or who cares if we can't make a shot? Or who cares if our, if our point guard won't play defense? It's just a game. It's just a game. But life's not just a game. As a matter of fact, life is more than a game. And I think as we look at scriptures over the course of this week, that we'll see a number of themes that will remind us of the fact that life, it truly is more than a game. And if there was one guy that got that, in a very pertinent and very pointed way, 
It's the man Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you've ever read any of the things that Jonathan Edwards wrote or even some of his messages that he preached that you can read today, such as Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What's interesting is you learn about the life of Jonathan Edwards, who, who, by the way, is credited as being one of the people who sparked the first great awakening here in the United States as a result of his preaching ministry. But as a young person, as a teenager, Jonathan Edwards wrote some things that were just incredible. He wrote a series of resolutions where he made an entire list of things that he resolved. He, he resolved, I will do this or I will not do that. And one of those resolutions, by the way, he was a teenager when he wrote it, and he, re- and he reviewed them daily. His daily resolutions, I will live this way or I won't live that way. And one of the statements he made, actually it's resolution number 17, went like this. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had when I come to die. Okay, you need to realize that's like 18th century English there, so it's a little bit complicated for us. But let me read it to you again and think about what he said. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had lived, in other words, I had lived when I come to die. So what was it that Jonathan Edwards was saying? What he was saying was this, I want to live in such a manner that when I get to the end of my life and it's all over, I don't have any regrets. And I'll look back at the end of my life and said, I wish I'd lived this way. I wish I'd lived that way. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. Or I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't done that. I'm just going to every day live in such a manner that I have the end in view is kind of the idea. Live with the end in view. Live with the end in mind, if I can put it that way. No regrets at the end of life. And the only way to live a life without regrets is to live life for Jesus Christ. To live, as someone already said earlier today, to live all in for Jesus Christ. Because our earthly lives will come to an end. And they will be punctuated by the moment that we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And give an account for how we have lived or not lived our lives for Him. And so I want to start today by going to a parable. And I want to take just a moment, because a number of my messages are going to be from the parables... I'm going to take just a moment to explain parables very, very briefly. It depends on who you ask. There are those who say there are as many as 60 parables because not in every case does it say Jesus began to tell a parable. Those are the obvious ones. But there are others that may or may not be classified. So somewhere between 30 and 60 parables are found in the Gospels. And we're familiar with a lot of them. We think of the parable of the good Samaritan. All right, good. Or the lost Sheep, or maybe the lost son, depending on who you ask. Or I could say the prodigal son. You know, you know that one. Or maybe ones that perhaps aren't quite as familiar, but you may remember the, the, the parable of the pearl of great price. Or the, again, it depends on who you ask, the parable of the sower or the seed or the soils. Really, it's all three, I guess you could say. And so those are some of the more familiar parables, but parables are, are something, literally the word, the word parable means to throw alongside of. So it's something thrown alongside of. It's, it's really designed to be a story that is a comparison. And Jesus used the familiar things of everyday life to tell these stories so that those who listened to him would immediately identify with what it was that Jesus was saying because they were things that they knew on a, on a daily kind of basis. And so we have parables that introduce themes like seeds and sowing that would have been familiar to an agra- agrarian uh, type of society or or housekeeping. We, there's the parable of the lost coin. This lady's cleaning her house, sweeping the floor, 
trying to find this coin, familiar things like that. Weddings are also some of the, the stories that Jesus uses, parables and families and rulers and business. And he does all those things. He uses the familiar to illustrate the eternal. He uses familiar things to illustrate eternal ideas. Or I like to put it this way. Parables are the, this. They are everyday stories that confront us with everlasting truths. In other words, they're not just, quote-unquote, a nice story. You know, we enjoy nice stories. But Jesus' stories were not, or his parables were not simply nice stories. They were stories designed to confront us. There's a lot of that in, in packed in those parables, and that will be the case for what we study over the course of this week. Confront us with everlasting truths, which are always designed to do what? Change us, right? God's Word is always designed to change our lives. And that's my prayer this week as we look together at this theme of life is more, it's more than a game, that God will use His Word to confront us and to change our lives. Notice with me our text in this, what is typically known as the parable of the talents that's found here in Matthew chapter 25. I want us to begin by reading verses 14 through 19. Matthew 25 verse 14, it says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Here's the big idea of this passage of Scripture. It's simply this, that God wants us to invest our lives with the end in mind. To invest our lives realizing that what Jesus is describing here is really representative of our lives, that He gives to us all the resources that we enjoy in life. They are really from Him. They are really His. He gives those to us to steward. And someday we are going to stand before Him and give an account for all that we've done with everything He's ever given to us. Live with the end in mind. And verse 19 very clearly states that when it says, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Every one of us, someday, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 describes it as the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us will give an account of what we've done with everything that God has given to us. Would you pray with me as we look together at this text? Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. Thank you for the, the pointed message of the Scriptures, and especially this Scripture. I pray today that you would use it in, in our hearts to again remind us that life isn't a game and that we are to live in a manner that, that, that is a reflection of the fact that, that the day is coming we'll stand before you. Father, I pray for your Spirit's work through your Word. Thank you that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide asunder bone and marrow, discerning the intents and the thoughts of the heart. Pray that your word used by your, your spirit would do that, that fine surgery in each of our hearts today to, to convict us where conviction is needed, us, to compel us uh, where the compulsion is needed to, to obedience, to, to, to do that which only you can do, Lord, to change us, to make us more like the image 
of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I would pray too that you might use your word if there are those this morning who are not truly born-again believers, who are not children of God. I pray that you would use your word to speak to them about their need for Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to point us this morning in two different, different, direction, two different directions. In other words, two ideas from this portion of Scripture in relationship to living in light of, of the end. And the first one is this, the responsibility. And that responsibility is described for us in, in verses 14 through 18. And it begins by the resources being entrusted, verses 14 and 15, to give us the account of a wealthy man leaving and, and wanting to leave his, his resources in the hands of, of his servants. And so he calls them together, and the whole intent of, of him doing that is so that they would earn more money for him in his absence. The text describes those resources in a number of ways. Verse 14, they're referred to as goods. In other words, things that you could buy and sell and, and trade. Uh, they're described in verses 18 and, and 27 as talents. And typically that's what we use when we describe this parable. We refer to this parable as the parable of the talents because that is used the most. But in verse 18 and in verse 27, you, you see the, the term money is actually used. In verse 18, verse 27. So while talent is the primary word, using all of those three help us to realize that what Jesus is doing here is he's describing wealth. He's describing wealth both in terms of money as well as material things that could be sold and that could be traded. But the primary word he uses is the word talent. And talent's an interesting word. It's actually a measurement of weight. A measurement of weight. But it was used to refer to money because money would oftentimes be weighed. And oftentimes it would be assigned value then based on how much that money weighed. So not always did everybody have the modern type of coinage that we think of. And so they would even weigh their money. It's interesting, the, ver the word money that's used in verse 18 and the word money that's used in verse 27, literally it's, it's, it's not money, the Greek word is actually silver. So the Greek word that's used there is silver. So he's probably speaking in terms of what this man's property, property was worth in terms of its weight in silver. And of course, you understand if, if, if a talent was a measurement of weight, depending on what it was you were weighing, determined how valuable it was. And so the, the text here seems to refer to weight in silver, but you could have weighed gold. You could have weighed copper. You could have weighed bronze. You could have weighed any number of resources, those types of precious metals. And of course, the, the more valuable something would be, the more value it would be in terms of its weight. And so the master left these resources to his servants, but I think it's important for us to understand he left a huge amount. He left a huge amount of resources because a Roman talent weighed about, think about this, weighed about 70 pounds. A Roman talent weighed about 70 pounds. Right now, some of you are doing the math, right? 70 pounds of silver. Kids, if I gave you 70 pounds of silver, what would you be? Rich, exactly. Very good. Adults, if I gave you 70 pounds of silver, what would you be? Rich. <laughs> what, was, so what was that? Somebody happy? <laughs> Somebody said that's something other than rich. Well, think about it even in these very practical terms. Some estimate that one talent of silver would have been worth 20 years worth of wages. Just one talent of silver would have been worth 20 years worth of wages. Now, I don't know what you make, and I don't know what the average American makes, but we'll just take, we'll take $50,000 and pull it out of the air, okay, in terms of what if you made $50,000 a year? Multiply that times 20 years worth of wages. You mathematicians, what's that add up to? A million dollars. 
I thought for sure there'd be some accountants that like, right there in their head, shoot it right out type of thing. A million dollars. So what the text is describing here in, in, in modern terms, understand I'm just kind of trying to bring this to our day and age today. It, it's talking in, in those kinds of terms. One man gets a million dollars, one man gets, a, gets two million dollars, and one man gets five million dollars. Pretty incredible, isn't it? And so this man is going away and he's entrusting these things. And what really this text is teaching is the biblical concept of stewardship, that we are that a steward is someone who is responsible for someone else's resources. And of course, the Bible is full of that theme because what are all of us that are believers in Jesus Christ? Every one of us is a steward, right? Everything you have is not yours. Everything I have is not mine. It's ultimately all God's and God has given it to us to steward and to use in a manner that brings him glory and in, in investing those things for him. And so this speaks of God's resources. It's also important to point out that the talents were given out on the basis of the ability of the servants. Notice the way it states it specifically in verse 15. Because in verse 15 it says, And to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, and to another he gave one. To each what? Verse 15. To each according to his own ability. And so the master here gives out these talents. He, he is after all what? He's the master representative of the Lord Jesus Christ and the servants representative of those who are professing believers. And there are a couple of principles I think it's really important for us to understand. The first one is this, what God gives to us is his job. It's his responsibility. Have you ever been tempted to wonder, why doesn't God give me more of this or more of that in terms of responsibility, in terms of opportunity, whatever that might look like? Why? Well, it's his prerogative, not ours. And so what God gives to us is his responsibility. But secondly, what we do with it is our responsibility, which, of course, the text is going to expand upon in terms of that responsibility. And so the responsibility or the resources are entrusted in verses 14 through 15. But then in verses 16 through 18, we see those resources invested. What were they supposed to do with what the master had given to them? They were supposed to trade with it and make it into more. They were to gain more from it. And so you see in verse 16, that he, he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Verse 17, and, he, and likewise, he who had two received two, gained two more also. But then notice what it says about verse, in verse 18 about the one talent guy. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. I want to point out a number of, of things in relationship to this text, just to make sure we understand what it is that's, that's happening. What, what, the, what the text is teaching us is this, is that we are to use what God has given us to gain more for Him. Verse 16, the word that's used there is the word traded. In other words, they took that which they'd been given, the goods, the, the funds, all of those resources, they sold them for a prop, profit. Maybe, maybe even commodities, agricultural commodities. They might have bought grain and then turned around and sold it for more. They might have bought land and turned around and sold it for more. Any one of those kinds of things. And so the five-talent guy turns it into ten. The two-talent two talent guy turns it into two. But the one-talent guy turns it in. I'm sorry, turns it into four. But the one-talent guy ends up with just one talent. Why? Because of what he did with it. He didn't invest it. What did he do? The text tells us. The text tells us he buried it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, that's outlandish, right? That's ridiculous. What in the world was he thinking? And there is a measure of that, but the reality of the matter is, is that wasn't altogether uncommon. 
As a matter of fact, one of the other parables that Jesus told was a parable about a guy finding a hidden treasure, what? Buried in a field. And so he was not unique. It wasn't the only guy that ever thought of that. And we'll find out later as we read the text why it was he thought that was a good idea, even though it was a horrible one. And so two guys take what God has given to them, the master has given to them, and they invest it. They come back with more, but one guy buries his talent. So what is the common denominator for all three? What's the common denominator for all three? The common denominator is this. They all had a choice. And that choice involved risk. Think about that. J.D. Greer wrote a great book entitled Gaining by Losing. It's really it's a book about missions, really, ultimately, but it's about missions as a result of Christians being discipled and living out their faith and multiplying disciples and then being sent out uh, to reach the world for Christ. But one of the things he points out in his book, Gaining by Losing, is, is this, that, that risk is always a part of living for Jesus Christ and being faithful with what God has given to you. And he points out the fact that there's always this connection because there's always this connection between what? Risk and return. Because no risk results in what? Results in what? No return. No risk results in no return. And so the one who took no risk is the one who ended up with no return. And yet so many Christians live their lives in such a manner, especially in the United States of America, where I don't want to take any risks. Have you noticed the new little phrase that has become common since COVID? As you greet people or as people greet you, I, I noticed this a while back. As people say goodbye almost, this has become the common phrase I hear people say, at least in Ohio, okay, where I live. Be safe. Be safe. That's not a bad wish. I, I know It's not like I say, no way, I don't want to be safe. I want to be dangerous. You know, that's not how I respond. But think about that. That has become almost like a mantra of, of what you say to people when you say goodbyes. Be safe. Be, and I think some of it's because of COVID, because we're all, you know, we were all worked up for, for two years about we're all going to die <laughs> type of thing. And so be safe. Be safe. Let me ask you, is that, is that really the way Christians ought to live their lives? Is be safe? I have, a, I have a tendency to think that that's the way we think oftentimes. After all, we live in the United States of America, probably one of the safest, if not the safest countries in the world. And so we like our peace. We like our safety. We like being safe. But how about turning that into be safe, but take risks for God? In other words, if obedience demands taking a risk, then obey God and take that risk. One of my coworkers at Baptist Mid-Mission, Steve Anderson, who oversees our North American Ministries has made this observation. I think it's significant. He, he says, you know, I don't agree with the statement that says the safest place to be is in the will of God. I don't agree with the statement the safest place to be is in the will of God. Because the will of God may take you to a very dangerous place. The will of God may take you to an African country where Christians are hated or a Middle Eastern country where Christians are hated because it's a Muslim-dominant country. But if that's the will of God, that's the will of God. It may not be safe. It may be very risky. And part of investing your talents, what God has given to you in terms of your time and your treasure and your talents, your, your giftedness, is, is being willing to take risks for the maximum multiplication of what God has given to you. That's the idea here. Not just be safe. Not just be safe. I'm afraid that comfortable American Christianity's aversion to risk has actually crippled the church 
in the United States of America. Because we all just want to be safe. I mean, after all, the church I last pastored had a safety team. <laughs> Gun-toting dudes. And I'm not averse to that. That was fine. We did that. We needed to do that. But I think it is a little bit representative of the fact that, and I struggled with this as a pastor, we had more guys signing up to be on the safety team that I could get out and go do evangelistic calling with me. Because they were more about being safe and carrying guns. After all, it's kind of cool to carry a gun in church, you know, than they were about reaching somebody for Jesus Christ. Be safe instead of do what God wants you to do. What if, let me just ask you some really pointed questions here. What if every Christian took the risk of being all in for the Lord Jesus Christ? What if every Christian took that risk? What if every Christian regularly took the risk, if I can call it that, of witnessing and sharing their faith? What if every Christian took the risk of actually giving at a sacrificial level financially instead of just whatever it is you've set to maybe give that's not sacrificial? What if every Christian took the risk of serving in, in new and, and challenging ways in their local church that would really push them and stretch them instead of only do that, doing that which is comfortable? What if every Christian would say, if God has called me, I will go to a foreign mission field, even though it involves risks. What if every Christian was at least willing to do that? Take those risks. I think we forget no risk means no what? No reward. No reward. I remember having conversations with my, my grandparents. Now, my, both sets of grandparents on my paternal side and maternal side were, were the products of the Great Depression. And so they would tell stories of, I remember my grand, one grandma especially telling not only stories of the Great Depression, but of the Dust Bowl. And we lived in Nebraska and what that did to the farm economy and, and things like that. And so as a result of that, that both of my sets of grandparents were very, uh, very conservative uh, when it came to investments. But my grandma Anderson, that was on the maternal side, my grandma Anderson wasn't nearly as conservative as my grandpa Odell was. So I remember as a teenager, or maybe even in my early 20s, my grandpa Odell saying, you know, you can't trust the stock market. I will never invest my retirement in the stock market at all. And so all of his retirement was invested in CDs, which at least back then the CDs actually paid something, okay, compared to now they pay nothing. But you can imagine him really still not getting a whole lot of a return because there wasn't any risk. And as a result of that, his retirement reflected that. On the flip side, my grandma Anderson, was, who was always a little bit of a maverick, um, she was one of those gals, went to college, was a school teacher, but also a carpenter. She actually built the house that my grandparents lived in, and just amazingly gifted, very bright woman. And I remember having a conversation with her, this was in the 80s, and she said, you know, I've been thinking about my portfolio, and I've been thinking about my investments. I, you know, there's, a, there's an investment that's doing really well, so I'm going to stick with it. I said, oh, really, grandma, what's that? And this is in the 80s, okay? It's this, it's this thing called Walmart? I don't know if you've ever heard of that, Pat. I'm like, yeah, isn't that some like superstore thing they're starting down in Arkansas or something like that? You know, because it was relatively small. I mean, there were Walmart star stores by this time, but I don't know that my grandma had ever seen a Walmart store. But she heard about Walmart and she invested in Walmart and guess what that stock did? Go back and look at the history of it from, from the 80s till, till whenever, you know, grandma went to be with the Lord. And so she took a risk. Rather than being my grandpa Odell, it was like, CDs only for me. She took a risk and in other, in other areas invested. And you can imagine the difference between the two in terms of what they set aside for their days of retirement. I wonder if too many Christians aren't CD Christians who won't take any risks. And I'm not talking about how you manage your money, okay? You manage your money however you want to manage your money. I'm not a financial advisor here today. 
But in terms of how you live your life, are you living like a CD Christian who's only going to take no risks, no risks, no risks, and as a result, no returns? So what if, how would, you, how would your life change if you viewed every minute of your day as an eternal investment? How would your life change if you viewed every penny of your financial resources as an eternal investment? How would you, your life change if you viewed every skill or every strength that God has given to you as something to invest to the max for Him, even if it involved risks? If you really believe you would be rewarded in heaven in direct proportion to how you are living, how you are giving, and how you are serving, how should your life change? Did you ask yourself that question this morning? If you really believed that Jesus is teaching here, how should your life change in light of the fact he wants to reward you for your faithfulness with the talents he's given to you? responsibility. And then notice, secondly, the accountability. Because here's the great news, okay? The great news is the master's coming back. Well, that's kind of great news. Because it depends on which end of the spectrum you're going to be on when the master comes back, right? So it's great news for the first two guys. Notice here the commendation. It's described in verses 19 through 23. Pick up reading with me in verse 19 again. It says, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and, and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Verse 22, he also he also who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so we see these verses and this description of, of commendation. It involved a number of things. It involved words of praise. Notice what it says there in verse 21 and verse 23. Really, the beginning of the verse is identical uh, verse 21, verse 23, in terms of the commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. And so there, there's a, an emphasis on both conduct and character. Well done, right? That's all about conduct. What it was that they had done. They've been faithful with their lives. I think it's interesting. Again, when you come back to this whole risk theme, Jesus didn't say, what were you thinking? The master didn't say, what were you thinking? You could have lost it all by buying that land. You could have lost it all by buying that grain. You could have lost it all by being risky with my resources. No, the master doesn't say that. Instead, the master commends them for their conduct. He commends them also for their character. Well done, he says. But then he says, my good and my faithful servant. All statements in reference to both conduct and character. Both matter to the Master. And so he commends both of these men for, for both of the ways that they had conducted themselves. And I think this is really important for us to understand. That the measuring stick for eternal commendation is faithfulness, not giftedness. It's faithfulness, not giftedness. In other words, the Master doesn't say, you know what? I'm going to say even more about the five-talent guy. Because remember, they were given talents in proportion to what? 
in proportion to, to, to how the Lord trusted them and to proportion to their ability, it says in verse 15. But Jesus doesn't, or the master doesn't say here, you know, five-talent guy, you're even better than the two-talent guy. No, because they had been what? Equally what? Faithful. They'd been equally faithful. So it's not a matter of, of our talents and, and even our success. The measuring stick for eternal commendation is faithfulness, not giftedness. So don't worry if you feel like, man, I don't have that many gifts. I don't have that many talents. I don't have that many whatever. It's not about that. Use what God has given you. And don't worry about what God has given somebody else. It's a matter of faithfulness. The second thing I also want to point out, not only this, is this word, these words of praise, but also greater opportunity. Verses 21 and ver- verse 23, they end with, I'll make you ruler. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. So there's greater opportunity. Which is interesting to think about that, because where does this, where does this come to fruition? In other words, where does this greater opportunity happen? It's in eternity. I mean, you can make the case for in the millennial kingdom and then in the eternal state, you know, in terms of our eschatology. But it's interesting, that statement, because have you ever thought about that in, re- in reference to heaven? Greater opportunity in heaven. So what does that look like? I like the way John MacArthur describes it. And so let me just, I know this is a little bit of a long quote, but hang with me in this long quote, because I think he describes it really well. As he's describing heaven, he says this, it will be a time of ever-expanding an increasingly joyous service. And the saints who will, who then will serve the Lord the most and rejoice the most will be those who have served the Lord the most steadfastly while on earth. Stop and think about that. So what he's saying is those who will serve the Lord the most and the most joyfully in heaven will be those who have done that on earth. Now, then he goes on and qualifies. He says, now every soul in heaven will be, will equally possess eternal life. That's important for us to understand. We will equally possess eternal life and we will be equally righteous, equally Christ-like, and equally glorious. Everyone will be equally perfect because perfection has no degrees. The difference will be in opportunities and levels of service. Just as the angels serve God in rank, so will redeemed men and women. And the degree of their heavenly service will have been determined, listen to this, by the devotedness of their earthly service. The degree of their heavenly service will have been determined by the degree or the devotedness of their earthly service. Then he goes on to say, heaven will involve different qualities of service because everything, well, excuse me, heaven will not involve different qualities of service because everything heavenly is perfect. Everything done for the Lord will be perfectly right and perfectly satisfying. There will be no distinctions of superiority or inferiority, and there will be no envy, jealousy, or anything remnant of the sinful human nature. Whatever one's rank or responsibility or opportunity, those will be God's perfect will for that individual, and therefore will be perfectly enjoyed in a way that is beyond our present comprehension. Believers will be both equal, catch this, Believers will be both equal and unequal in the millennium and in the eternal state. Now, all you theologians are going to come to me and say, let's talk about that. All right, that's to be continued. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) But I think it, it does grab our attention in terms of what we are doing right now is in light of heaven. It's in light of being able to serve him in heaven and the opportunities of doing so. And so this commendation is distinguished in terms of words of praise and greater opportunity 
but also it's, de- it's de- described in terms of the joy in the Lord's presence. Joy in the Lord's presence. I, lo- I love the way it states it when it says, enter, enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the best of all, right? That's the best part of heaven. Being in the very presence of God Himself. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but as I think about these verses of Scripture, and it's repeated in verse 21 and, and then again in verse 23, where, where the Master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. There are no words that I want to hear more, that I yearn to hear more, than those words from my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? That the thing you want to hear the most someday, when you're in the very presence of the one who died on the cross for you, you're in the very presence of your Creator, when you're in the presence of God, do you not want Jesus to look you in the eye and you to look up into His eyes and for Him to say to you, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Every single one of us ought to so long from those words from the Lord Jesus Christ that our lives are different, that we live in light of that, that we live with the end in mind because all of us will stand before Jesus someday, either at the judgment seat of Christ for words of commendation or at the great white throne judgment if you don't know Christ for words of condemnation. And that's the way the rest of the text ends. Because not only is there commendation, but there's also condemnation. It's described in verses 24 through 30. Verse 24 says this, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have, your ta- well, uh, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited the money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. And here's the tragedy of it all. Listen to it, verses 29 and 30. For to everyone who has more will be given and he who will have an abundance, but from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. And the tragedy especially is verse 30. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Condemnation. Condemnation. And I want us to notice four different things that are pointed out in this text about this not happy ending of this third servant. First of all, he misunderstood the master. Did you notice the way he describes the master? And again, the master is representative of the Lord. He describes the master in verse 24 in terms of him being hard or or harsh. Listen, your service for the Lord is a direct reflection of your opinion of the Lord. Whether or not you serve Him and how you serve Him and even the motives by which you serve Him are all a reflection of who you think God is. Who you think Jesus is. And it's important for us to understand, he didn't know the nature of the master because he didn't have a real relationship with him. You understand that, that the Bible describes salvation as knowing God. 
I love that statement that's found in John 17.3 when Jesus says that in terms of defining eternal life. He says eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God. Eternal life is all about a relationship. Jesus himself taught that in Matthew 7.23 when he, he said, I never knew you. He cast them away. I never knew you. So this servant represents those who think they are believers. Those who think they are, are Christians and don't have a real relationship with Christ. And their life reflects that fact. Is that true of you? Could that be you today? Someone who really isn't living for the Lord Jesus because possibly you don't have a real saving relationship with Him. He misunderstood the Master. Secondly, He was motivated by fear. Verse 25, it, it states that at the beginning of the verse, I was afraid. And by the way, this is not a healthy reverence for God. The Bible teaches a lot about the fear of God. And there is a healthy reverence for God that ought to motivate us in the right way. That's not what this is describing. To paraphrase Warren Wiersbe a, a little bit, you know, God forbid that I would try to improve on Warren Wiersbe, but to paraphrase Warren Wiersbe, an unhealthy fear of God paralyzes while a healthy fear of God mobilizes. When we understand who God is and we understand who we are, boy, we ought to want to serve Him with all of our hearts and with all of our lives. That was not the case with this servant. And so this servant represents professing believers whose mindset is this. If I surrender my life to Christ, I won't have any fun. Or if I give my life to the Lord, He'll make me miserable. He'll spoil my life. So I'm going to live for me because I know better than God. I mean, is there anything more incredibly both foolish and arrogant and statement of unbelief than to think that way and or to live that way? It's really saying, I know better than God. I, I love what my predecessor at First Baptist in Malaria used to say on a regular basis. He said, there's only one God and you're not Him. There's only one God and you're not Him. You see, all of us live by a, a, a system of theology. We may not have written it down in terms of the ten major doctrines, but every, every person on planet Earth, even those who are unbelievers, live by a system of theology in terms of what they believe, what they believe, who God is, and who they are in relationship to God. And you know what the majority of Americans have for a system of theology? I call it a system of meology. Instead of theology that's focused on God, that's the concept of theology, is a study of God, they live by meology. In other words, they set themselves on the throne of their own lives as if they were God because they know better. They have a plan for their life. They want it their way. And in reality, that's not living for God. That's living for self. I love, no, I don't love, I hate. <laughs> the, 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 I get a kick out of, I guess, maybe is the way I should have put it. The modern meology of just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. No! Don't follow your heart! It's desperately wicked and deceitful. It's meology, not theology. The sad part is, is this all ended tragically. And so will your life if you live for yourself, by the way. It will end tragically. He misused his talent, thirdly, so he's motivated by fear. He misused his talent. For sake of time, we'll jump past that. He buried it. But then ultimately and finally, he was mistaken about his identity. Verses 26 and 30, we already read it to you in terms of what the master says to him. He says, you lazy, you wicked servant. I think it's interesting that no heinous sins are stated about this professing follower of the master. He doesn't say you're an adulterer. He doesn't say you're a drunkard. He doesn't say you're a child molester. 
He doesn't say you're an embezzler. This man was an otherwise upstanding citizen. Presumably a believer, right? Until you read the rest of the story and realize he wasn't that at all. The master rebukes him for at least not putting the money in a bank. Roman banks would have paid 6% in interest. He could have at least made that. But no, he buried it. And the greatest tragedy of all is what is described in verse 30 when the Bible says that he's thrown into outer darkness, utter separation from the illuminating glory of the presence of God where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those two statements always refer to in Scripture the eternal torment of hell. The lake of fire. And so while this man thought he was a follower of the Master, his works demonstrated that he was not. And that doesn't mean this text is teaching works salvation. It's not teaching that at all. What it's teaching is the fruit of a life that's lived for God. The fruit of a life where people invest what God has given to them. And so it's illustrating a, a professing believer who squanders their life. And in squandering their life, they demonstrate that their faith is phony. It's counterfeit. It's not a saving faith. And if you are investing your life for yourself, and investing your life, not investing your life for the Lord, you have every reason to question the legitimacy of your salvation. Don't be mistaken about your eternal destiny. Live in a manner that is evidence of your salvation. And if you are not, and you are uncertain of your salvation, trust Christ today, the one who died on the cross for your sins, to give you eternal life and to forgive you of your sins. I've written a piece that maybe represents a little bit of what we're talking about here in terms of what would a one-talent Christian look like today? What might a one-talent Christian look like? Christian, you know? Think of it like this. I am a one-talent Christian. I attend church most of the time. Well, except for when my kids have soccer games. And, and except for when the big game comes on TV before I can get home from church. And except for when the guys really want to go golfing. And, and I go to church except for when I can pick up extra shifts at work so we can afford that big vacation. Except for when the walleyes are biting. And I go to church except for when I'm really tired from a long week and deserve to sleep in. And I go to church except for when I have a cold and the weather's bad and I and maybe stay up too late watching a movie on Saturday night. Well, well maybe, maybe I don't attend church quite as much as, as I think. Besides, I read my Bible. I read my Bible the rest of the week, right? Well, well maybe some. Um, at least a couple of times a week when I'm not too rushed or too tired or too distracted by the kids, my, my phone or my hobbies. Uh, maybe, maybe I don't read the Bible that much. But after all, I'm really busy serving the Lord, like in the church nursery every month that has a fifth Sunday. And there was that one time that actually I, I served in an outreach event. You wouldn't believe it, though. Nobody even thanked me for me taking half an hour from my busy schedule to help out with that outreach event. Such ungrateful people. All right, maybe I don't serve that much, but I give a lot to the church. My pastor preached a sermon on tithing one time, and the very next week, I gave 10% of that week's paycheck. Okay, so the budget got a little tight, and I had to stop giving. I'm sure God understands that it would be a bad testimony if I didn't make my $600 a month truck payment. Oh man, I like that truck. Oof. But I need to be a good testimony to make sure I make that truck payment. And, and what if I miss my monthly payment on my new iPhone, right? Those are all important, you know. 
So maybe I don't give that much. Besides, I try to be a witness. I try to tell others about Jesus. Well, not really tell them about Jesus, but like live a good testimony, be a good example. As a matter of fact, I quit swearing at work just to be a better testimony. I don't swear nearly as much as all my unsafe friends. That's a good testimony, right? So you see, I am a model, one talent Christian who is doing everything he can to bury that one talent in the ground. Are you that person? Because the reality of the matter is that one talent Christian isn't a Christian at all. Let me wrap up this morning by asking you just a set of quick questions as we conclude. A set of quick questions. And they are, are you living your life today so as to be ready for that day? Are you living your life today so as to be ready for that day, the end, the day you stand before the Lord? Are you living in that manner? How would your life change if you viewed every minute and every penny and every skill as an investment? Are you serving Jesus? Are you investing your life with the end in mind? What would be different about your life? What should be different about our lives in light of the end? Standing before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in the Word this morning. I pray that you would use these truths to mold us, shape us, and to change us for your glory. May we look forward to that day, and may we long to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name.